0: Well, church, our study comes from John chapter 6. We're going to look at those last few passages this morning, last few verses of John chapter 6. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to find your way to that right now. If you don't, there's a Bible in the back of your pews on page 520. You'll find our text to study this morning. Maybe it's 521. We'll see. Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, speaking of all that Jesus had taught up until this point, they said, teach, said, they said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, asked them, does this offend you? That what, then what, what, what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending where he had come from before, where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some among you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and the ones who would betray him, the one who would betray him. He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. Sad day. So Jesus said to the twelve, You don't want to go away, go away too, do you? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus replied to them, didn't I choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He was referring to Judas, Simon Iscariot, the Simon Iscariot's son, one of the twelve, because he was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Yes, amen. All right, so today we are... Finishing up chapter 6. As you can tell in your bulletin, I'd hope to be at chapter 7 today, but that didn't happen. But I feel like today's, this last few verses are something we don't want to take for granted of chapter 6. Just give you a quick little update on where we're going. So we're going to stop chapter 6 in our study in John for a few weeks after today. And then next week I kick off a series in Jonah for four weeks where me and the elders will be preaching that together. Um, while I go to youth camp and do a little bit of vacation time thereafter. So these guys are going to step in and we, man, we had such a wonderful time here about, I guess about two weeks ago, talking through the book of Jonah and walking through it was such a really rich, beautiful time where we just talked about God's word and mapped out our sermon series. And so you should be grateful. You got very smart and very wise and humble men leading you, um, and I do not count myself among that group. <laughs> I count those guys leading the way. Okay, um, So we're going to be served well by them. I'll, lead, I'll kick us off next week, and then I will be going into camp mode for a week or so. And then we'll go into a little bit of vacation time. And when I come back, we're going to come back into a series for the rest of J- July and through August about a series that I'm going to call um, Ordinary Church. We are accustomed to saying Ordinary Church here Grace because... We like the ordinariness of who we are. We are a simple church. But simple church isn't just some contextual conviction that we have. It's not just some, you know, uh, what I'm going to say, some personality or culture decision we're making here. But actually, ordinary church, we believe, is very deeply biblical and very deeply beautiful. And I want to talk to you and share with you my, our, this a little bit more, especially since we have so many new folks, and just really cast a vision for what it is that we're doing here for the next, because we haven't done that in a while. And so I hope you'll be here for these these wonderful talks by the elders and then these times of reflection about what it means to be the church. But let's put our eyes on the text that we have for study this morning. How about that? John chapter 6 verses 60 through 61. Now, you'll be reminded if you've been here for the last few weeks that there's a larger storyline that this is set in and that's when Jesus fed the 5000, right? And with these very few fishes and loaves. And but we also know that that is just that's kind of the that's kind of this picture, but it actually it means way more than what you and I possibly sometimes even admit to what, or even understand about what's happening with that. But the bigger issues that we've been unpacking over the last few weeks in this chapter, and we've been in this chapter for, I think, five weeks now, has um, been dealing with this idea of what is it that we believe and how do we believe it? Who is this Jesus, and do we actually see the real Jesus, and are we believing in the real Christ and what he's done? Is that that the anchor of our faith here this morning? Because if it's not, then we could be way off the mark as a church. And so that's really been the larger idea here that we've been unpacking over the last few weeks, that that Jesus has been teaching us, teaching them, and then by, by virtue of that, teaching us these implications of what it means to follow him and who he is. And as he's teaching... Jesus is touching on some hard issues, touching on some difficult doctrines. Doctrines like, for instance, the doctrine of incarnation, that God himself comes to us. That would be a very offensive idea to the Jews back then, that God condescends to us and comes to us, not that we have to go to him because we can't. And even more offensive in that doctrine of reincarnation is Jesus is divine and that he himself is equal with the Father and that he is himself fully God. And that would have been even more infuriating for the average Jew in Jesus' day. Then you got this doctrine of, and don't get alarmed by the word, penal substitutionary atonement. That's one that deeply offends people and it would have offended more of our modern sensibilities which would be like, they're like, oh, you mean God sends his son to be a sacrifice? That sounds gruesome. And some people even will say things like it's, a, it's divine child abuse. Um, so that's a very hard doctrine because he talks about us eating his flesh and his blood. I mean, by faith, we receive Christ's atoning work for us. We saw that last week. And then we've seen this doctrine of election. Guys, I'm, I promise you I ain't making this stuff up, all right? I mean, I know it's tough stuff, but the doctrine of election there, and we see that it's this fact that it's, it's God who's drawing us unto himself. It's God who assures us, based on his work, that we're his. End of discussion. Full stop. He's not just some puppet master. But that's what we sometimes do with that doctrine, because we want to look at it very superficially. And so the result of all of this chapter, and then what we find here in the concluding verses of chapter 6, is that they say there in verse Verse 60, this teaching is hard. And when they, say it's not, when they say it's hard, they're not talking about hard in terms of hard to understand. That's not the context they're talking about. It's that it's intolerable. That's how it's hard. I'm offended by this. That the doctrines of Christ and all the things that then support our doctrine of Christ are a very, very intolerable idea to the natural man. Who we are outside of Christ, who we are in our sinful state—like hearing these kinds of things makes us cringe because it it takes us out of the equation. It says you can't fix this on your own; only God can. Essentially, it's what you when you sum it all up. Amen. And this is really important for us. This is deeply offensive in our world today. It's a deeply offensive to some Christians, for that matter. And we need to recognize why is it that Jesus. And why do we understand our doctrine of Christ in these hard doctrines? And then so the result is what? What we find by the end of this, this passage that we read is that verse 44, I'm sorry verse, I'm sorry, verse 66, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. And even further than that, we're alluded to the fact that even those whom Jesus has chose of his 12 will reject him, Judas. So how are we to deal with this last few verses of john and how are we to put those into our framework and wrestle with them well well here's my big idea this morning hard doctrines of christ are necessary they're necessary in order for us to believe follow and obey him number one and number two to help a true disciple find that there's no other life outside of christ let me say that again these are the two big ideas this morning That hard doctrines of Christ are necessary for the people of God in order for us to believe, follow, and obey Christ, number one. And two, to help the true disciple find that there's no other life outside of Christ. This is what Peter's declaration is all about. i got nowhere else to go, Jesus. Have you got to that place in your life? I've got nowhere else to go. You have the words of eternal life. So let's just kind of walk through the text for a few moments. And, and really discuss two big ideas. One is, what does it mean? How do we wrestle with these idea of disciples who are falling away? And two, how will we deal with the, the idea of, of, this, of why does man fall away, essentially? And three, at the end, <laughs> the fact that disciples fall away. Two, we're going to talk about the fact that ask the question, why do these disciples fall away? And then we're going to look at the fruit of why these disciples like the fruit of true discipleship of those who actually stay okay so let's talk about this this idea that disciples fall away and i just want to say from the very beginning when we're talking about disciples falling away this is nothing new to us like we think in our world today when we hear about all these like popular deconversions from the gospel And we hear all these named, big names like Joshua Harris deconverting from the gospel uh, and all these other people. Like, we think that this is something new, but it's not. This is not a new idea. Um, We use the word deconversion there. In other words, this idea of of disciples following away and walking away and even rejecting Jesus. That word deconversion is maybe a modern way of saying those things. Now, let's just talk a little bit about in church history, like, how have we seen deconversions? play out there's been three ways deconversions play out among the followers of christ are those who formerly follow christ there's doctrinal deconversion and when we talk about doctrinal deconversion we're talking about those people who basically eventually just reject historic christian doctrine they find it untenable they because it just makes no sense in the world in which we live in so you've seen this all throughout church history people like even way back in church history like arianism Arianism was the idea that you know, Arian was, Arius was this guy who said, Listen, we, you know, we're all blank slates, and it's unfair for God to, to make us be born in a world where we are under sin, so therefore we must have to be a blank slate and therefore make our own free choices. And the reality is, is Arius was wrong and condemned by the church. He rejected essential Christian doctrine. Uh, one of the, Augustine was one of, the pe- or one, of the, one of the chief guys who, was, who, who countered him. Today we got guys like Rob Bell, you probably have heard that name. Peter Inns, who used to teach at Westminster, who's rejected Scripture. Even popular people like Jen Hatmaker, who seeks to be her own theologian and rewrites Scripture because she doesn't like the harder parts of Scripture. We had cultural deconversion. Cultural deconversion is those are those people who just like they can't, they can't bear the cost of the cultural expenses of our faith. In other words, hey, this is going to cost us too much politically. It's going to cost us too much for my, my station in society. That, you know what I'm saying? We've we got those all over the place today. Now, you can see a lot of overlap between all the ones I'm talking about here this morning. And so, again, you might use Joshua Harris as one of those people. He can't fathom that to reject a certain sexual ethics of the world because you're a believer that that himself is too high a cost for him culturally. You got social deconversion, similar to cultural deconversion, but we're talking about the more relational aspects. So you got popular, famous believers who reject Christianity because they have a family member who maybe embraces a certain lifestyle, whatever that lifestyle may be, and therefore because they don't want to risk the relationship, they reject or change some aspect of their Christian faith. So we have these three kinds of deconversions that have been hitting the church for for centuries. This is is nothing nothing new. But one of the things I want to dive in a little deeper on is this idea of like, okay, so we got people who walk away. Maybe they're just people who've been in the church, but they've never really truly been converted. But Jesus seems to indicate here there are those that he's actually chosen who walk away, i.e. Judas. People that Jesus himself have called out are his and somehow or another they're walking away what about those people who seem to have some genuine sense of conversion they these from our perspective they seem to be professing believers but they ultimately walk away and judas fits this bill does he not he abandons and again turns away from jesus who has chosen him and it's not that he just turns away from jesus but he actually turns to be an antagonistic force against Jesus, right? He, he plays a part against those forces that want to see something bad happen to Jesus. And so if you want to, this is what we might call apostasy. Apostasy defined is not just that abandonment of a previously held religious faith, but it's also in many cases the growing antagonism towards it. So we have got those people who leave the faith and they don't leave quietly. They are now not only just people who have tried to be neutral, although you really can't be neutral, but they are vocal opponents to the cross of Christ. That's why we sing of the cross of Christ so intimately every Sunday or most Sundays. We see this in Judas. He didn't just leave quietly. He played against Jesus. He sold Jesus out. And we see that sometimes in our modern deconversions today as well. Now look, generations of Christianity have tried to wrestle with this idea of apostasy. What are we to do with this? And I will tell you, there's a great book called Running the Race by Tom Schreiner that's very helpful in understanding where does apostasy play out in your doctrine. And I would encourage you possibly to read a couple portions of it, though it's quite academic, but it's very well written. But this, this is not a new problem. The church has been wrestling with, what do you do with people who apostatize from their faith? People who seem, from our vantage point, to be genuine believers. And they don't just walk away, they become enemies of the church. What do you do with those kinds of people? Because clearly the Bible seems to indicate that the view that sometimes professing believers actually do fall away. And R.C. Sproul comes to our rescue here. And I love the way he frames it. He says we need to differentiate from the professing believer versus the faith-possessing believer. Amen. No, the professing believer is that that is really within our scope. I I can evaluate nothing about your genuineness of your faith, and you can do none to evaluate mine. All I can do is by the best of my abilities, look at the fruits of your profession. And you look at the fruits of my profession. And so there's a difference between evaluating the professing believer versus that faith possessing believer. And you and I really never know who's a faith possessing believer other than hopefully the fruits play themselves out. But again, all I can do is evaluate profession. And so what he's trying to get at here is that as a human, humanly speaking, you and I as a church, Man, we can sit down and we can evaluate, we can question, we can look at new converts, people who get baptized, and we can begin to ask, okay, do these people seem to understand basic Christian theology? Do they seem to have an understanding of what it means and the cost of following Jesus? And they, and they can do this, and they can do this for a very long time. But if you have been around the church for a long time, you find that there are those who do walk away. They walk away and it hurts whether it's a child that you've trained since they were a child and they made a profession of faith when they were very young, or someone, a dedicated Sunday school teacher, like happened in my uh, world back in my home church of First Baptist Roanoke. We had a dedicated community, uh, uh, small group leader in our youth ministry there, and he left the church, embraced a different lifestyle, and has rejected his Christian faith entirely. A person who was deeply loved, and it hurt a lot of people when that happened. From the outside looking in he looked like he had everything about his profession of faith locked down on the inside it was a totally different story so we need to be okay with the fact that this the ideas of apostasy are they're hard to mine through they're hard for us to wrestle with and it's okay but what's most important for us is that it's okay for us to grieve them as well that when you have people who who've you've shared a pew with that you've shared a fellowship meal with perhaps you've been in a small group with and they've just, for one reason or the other, the next week they don't show up anymore. And not only do they show up anymore, but you hop on Facebook and you realize, oh, they're not just not showing up, but look what they're writing. Look what they're sharing about what's going on in their soul. Again, probably the most alarming of recent days, recent years, has been Joshua Harris's whole deconversion. Because his seems to have rocked a lot of, faithful believers and we're easily started when we see startled when we see these things right when we hear about these things or the latest popular christians or even the former pastor who denies some aspect of their faith or their faith entirely i have at least one distant friend in the last year that i've seen through facebook who has now swearing off evangelicalism entirely because of the whole scandal with robbie zacharias and his ministries So people fall away. We don't have to have all the answers as to why they have fallen away. We don't have to do the work of whether or not they're genuine believers or not. We just know that that happens. And we need to be okay with that. And we need to trust God and his sovereign work in the midst of those kinds of things. It's been quite prosaic in the world we live in to have people make these grand gestures on social media about how they've been enlightened. And I'm no longer a Christian. I'm abandoning the faith of my childhood. And I just remind you back to what I said at the very beginning. There's nothing new here. Christians have been doing this, or people, supposed Christians have been doing this since the beginning of the church. I love Brett McCracken's article on this issue about deconversions. He says, the formula is pronounced. A former evangelical author pastor, CCM star, or simply a raise in the church 20-something posts a self-portrait looking ponderous and solemn yet free. Maybe they've seen you're seeing them from behind looking at some beautiful take of a mountain scene or lake. Perhaps they are carefully select this this is me warts and all selfie that perfectly imperfectly within perfect styling. The post accompanies a text usually begins with some variation of, I thought I would say this, I thought I would never say this, or it's terrifying for me to post this, followed by a lengthy narrative involving some combination of words such as, I'm involving, or the journey, or fear, or discovery, or honesty, or authentic, or free, or hopeful. He continues, I don't mean to diminish the sincere, agonizing, and legitimate trepidation that accompanies individuals whose decision to make their deconversion Instagram official. I'm just observing that this has become a genre, a predictable, commonplace, and not at all surprising artifact of the find-yourself age. We need some honesty here, though. Far from renegade, edgy, and brave, the announcement of a person's conscious uncoupling from the institutional religion is simply going with the flow of culture that that has been mainstreamed such behavior for decades. Rather than going against the grain of Western culture, he says, abandoning, abandoning received doctrine and institutional faith in favor of a self-styled, follow-your-heart spirituality is quite smoothly with the grain. This is the world we live in, who tries to make themselves look like they're going against the grain, but really they're going with the grain. This is what our culture does. He finishes up, to the degree one's spiritual autonomy, one's unshackling from Christianity's constraints or old-fashioned ideas about sin and morality is simply to not along with Oprah and her vast tribe of suburban moms. To disown a God of limitations, boundaries, and wrath in favor of a God who only wants to fund your best life dreams and promote John Lennon's style of love and good vibes is it to join the ranks of frat boys obsessed with Joe Rogan name it claim it prosperity preachers and the vast majority of best-selling authors in religion spirituality and faith for the past 20 years nothing new to see here friends nothing new to see here it might look prettier but there's nothing new to see here don't be duped don't be duped by the well-styled deconversion story. Don't be more fearful of that because somehow or another you think it means more to the church's foundations in the world because it does not mean that. The church has had these problems for, for as long as the church has been the church. What we need to look at is then why? Why do these people leave? And Jesus makes it clear here in this text, verses 60 through 65. He says, Jesus knowing in himself, verse 61... That, this, that his disciples were grumbling. He asked them, does this offend you? Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are Spirit and our life. But there are some of you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who didn't, did not believe and the one who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by... The Father. Three core things that we see here. One is, don't be duped. The gospel is offensive. Now, 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 lest you feel like it's your responsibility to make the gospel offensive, let me make sure that you know that that's not your job. The gospel does it all by itself. So don't go out there being a jerk. All right? That's just a little pastor-like freebie. But the fact is, the gospel and all the related doctrines are an offensive reality to mankind that's found in in its natural condition. Why are we shocked by this? Why are we? That God condescends to us? That undoes our pride, does it not? That, that, That God offers his Son as a substitutionary sacrifice for us? Again, our pride is further undone. It should be. The fact that, that God draws us sweetly into his salvation with grace and compassion, the final death nail of our pride. What do you think the gospel's about? It's about confronting you, and it's about confronting me in our in our, in our blindness, shaking us out of our lethargy, showing us that we can do nothing to affect our eternal state without God's intervention. Amen. The gospel is offensive. Why are we shocked by this? Why are we worried when the the best and the brightest of the Christian evangelical complex falls away? Did it change the gospel? Not one iota. It is offensive. And, And Jesus seems to indicate very clearly, only the spirit born can tolerate the goodness of hard doctrine. The reason this is offense to you, you're saying, it's because you're not spirit born. You're leaning on their flesh. You're leaning on your own abilities to figure this whole thing out. The flesh born cannot taste the goodness of the gospel. Now, again, caveat, be careful that you don't assume that someone who might hold different doctrinal views on certain matters here and there, that, that somehow or another means that they're not a genuine believer or they're not wrestling with hard things. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the hardness Of doctrine that makes the gospel offensive. And church, that's one of the things we're passionate about here. We have no desire to make the gospel offensive, but to reveal the offense of the gospel as revealed in Scripture. So that it'll shock people out of their blindness and they might be saved. This is what it means. Only the Spirit can lead us to deny ourselves and our personal kingdom projects. Only the Spirit helps us stop pretending that we are something when we are not. That we are not the sum total of our expressive individualistic pursuits. Only the Spirit confronts everything that feeds our dangerous pride. The Spirit comes in and does a work that you and I cannot do on our own. So that's why deconversion happens. That's why people fall away. Rest assured, that is why we see what we see. It's just easier to find now because of our social media age. Now, if mankind ultimately deconverts because they find the gospel offensive, well, then what fruit should we be looking for in people who are genuinely converted, at least to the best of our ability? Well, I think that's what Jesus gets at here in verse sixty. 66. I'm sorry, 67. And Jesus said to his 12, those original disciples, So, you don't want to go away too? And was, Jesus, was Peter's response? First time we've heard from Peter in a while in this gospel. Um, Lord, to whom will we go? Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Lord, You, we've come to believe in, know that you are the Holy One of God. What's he getting at? Well, two things. Dependency is a fruit of the gospel. And conviction. First, dependency. To whom will we go? You have all of it. You have all the words that we have found and we we can't go anywhere else. Peter's response to Jesus is a spirit-born dependency is that growing in you this morning a, a kind of dependency that will save you when you're in your worst moment because here's what i love about this peter says these words because you know how peter is peter's like always the mold one right but these words will save peter one day because peter says i'm not going to abandon you but he does and he does it with magnificent wonder. I mean, he does it, like, art, I mean, artfully, he does it. It's amazing. And he's hiding in his shame after Jesus resurrects, comes back from the dead, and Jesus is the one who goes to him and says, Go find Peter, bring him here. And it's Jesus who goes to Peter, because Peter's out on the corner, acting like awful sheepishly. Like, I don't know if Jesus really wants me here right now or not, because he, I mean, you don't know what I just would have just done. But it's it's that Peter who has this confession one day that the Lord will sweetly remind him, Jesus, I mean, Peter, are you dependent upon me? Do you love me, Peter? That's the basis of God's relationship with us. Do we depend on him? Are we leaning on him? Not that you get it all right, not that you don't mess up, and not that you don't make lots and lots and lots and lots of mistakes all the way to heaven. But that you just have this growing dependency upon him. Then there's conviction. Because he matches this dependency with conviction. We have come to believe and what? No. Very hard word there very definitive word. Know that you are the Holy One of God. Our profession, friends, and our confessions matter. We should never take for granted being a people who have a, have a, have a, have a build-out confession as a church. We have it here. We, it's the New Hampshire Confession of Faith. We also lean in on the 1689 faith. And these are not just side things that like, only super Christians engage with. No, they're, they're, they're guardrails. They're guardrails that serve us. They help us crystallize our conviction about what we have seen and what we have heard. And this is what Jesus, this is what Peter's doing. We have seen and heard, and so my confession is true. And I'll stand on that, and that's going to protect me in my worst moment. And it would for Peter. And not only when Peter denies Jesus, but when he's standing before the authorities, and Peter looks at them and says, We have nothing, we can do nothing but proclaim Jesus, so do as you will. Threaten me all you want to with jail and with death. i got nothing else in my life that I can depend on except for this guardrail, this confession that has been, I've been leaning on for, the re- for my life since I've met Christ. To see, the Spirit works through these areas within the body of Christ. And so let me just say a caveat here. Be a people of the word. Don't be the kind of people who, who assume that your elders are the ones who are going to guard it for you. Go pick up the little doctrinal guide out here and study through it. Read through it. Be a people of your confession. Now, our confession may differ from the Presbyterians and other groups out there. That's okay. We might quibble on some side issues, some secondary and third-level issues. But that confession, the substance of it is true. So be a people of your confession. Baptist faith and message is another place to start. Since we're Southern Baptists. So the warning, though, before we move on from this, the fruit of this, this, again, the fruit is what? Dependency and conviction. Our confessions, and I believe when he, we talk about confessions here, we're talking about both our verbal confessions and those written confessions, are to be made of good use in the church. And you can, I can assure you that when the body of Christ, the, 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 the people who sit in the pews most Sundays, do not take this, but take it for granted. You can find your church that will slip really, really fast. And will accommodate to the culture and we're going to do our best level best not to do that they hem us in so let me just kind of get some concluding thoughts before we finish up this morning When we're thinking about this context of believers seemingly true believers from the best of our knowledge and best of our own experience who fall away from from the faith and and not only fall away from the faith but become somewhat antagonistic against the faith um, here's some thoughts about for you, how to avoid falling away. Because that's my concern. That the people that are in here are in here 20 years from now. The people in here that are my age, that we're we're dying together with this faith in decades from now. Embrace the goodness of hard doctrine, number one. Don't be that person who says doctrine's divisive, That's just not true. That's just not true. Jesus thought the gospel was hard, and so should you. And if he thought it was hard, then you need to dive into it and study it, and you need to wrestle with it for all your life. Embrace the goodness of hard doctrines. As I said already, make good use of your confessions. Pick up the little guides out in the hall. Well, they're not in the hall right now. They're off the wall, but they're in my office somewhere. You can go in there and dig around if you want to. That's not true, don't do that. Um, But uh, I'll find them for you. Uh, But uh, catechize your kids. Catechize yourself. Catechism is not just for the kids. It's about you taking doctrine and burying it in your heart and mind. So pick up a catechism booklet that we offer here. Or go purchase one on your own. If you need some help finding that out, I'll be happy to help you. And be a people of your doctrine. Bury it deep within. Never let it go. Again, it's for adults as much as it is for our children. Second thing I wanted to ask for you guys to, to do in terms of, 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 of protecting your own confession, and protecting your own profession somehow or the other, is learn to praise God for the humility to stay under his word of, the word of God praise God, depend upon God for the humility to stay under His Word because it's not easy. There's a lot of things that want to pull us out from under God's Word. If you're holding on to your confession, like in this world, it's like the wild, wild west out there, y'all. And it's every method's being used to try to pull us out from under the Word. But see, here's the thing. God's holding on to His own. We saw that last week. He's holding on to you. Hold on to him. Stay there in humility. Ask for God the wisdom and humility to stay there. Remember that Jesus came to gather those whom the Father had given him and assure them that they will be raised on the last day. Stay there. Stay only there. Fight to stay there. Because if you don't, I trust you, something else will fight for you, your heart. Recognize that your belief, your ongoing belief, needs help. This is what Jesus said, your flesh is no help. If, if, you're, if it's up to your flesh, your belief goes in the tanker really quick. You need spirit help. Amen. Learn to stay with the Father whose Son has ravaged that unclean spirit. Right? The father who came and brought his son, who's ravaged in the Holy Spirit, brought him to Jesus. And back in Mark, I think it's Mark chapter 6, he says, I believe, what he's going to say after that, help my unbelief. Like Friends, that's the posture of, the, of a genuinely humble Christian. Someone who says, I believe, I, I'm confident in it, but man, I need every bit of spiritual help in order to help to, to confront that unbelief that's creeping into my heart every single day of my life. J.C. Ryle, the great Anglican pastor from England back in the 1800s, says, humility is the frame of mind we should labor for and pray pray for it if we would not be offended by God's truth. The surefire way for you to be offended by God's word is when you don't cultivate, through the work of the Spirit, humility in your life. And humility is not easy. He says later on, again, the spiritual benefits come through what we ingest, not with what we come ingest with our mouths, but what we ingest through the spirit-drenched hearts. You can ingest things a lot of different ways, but only that which is indrenched with a a spirit-filled heart actually lasts, according to J.C. Ryle. It's the third way that we keep ourselves tried and true is to grieve those who leave and abandon the word. Don't get mad. Don't get argumentative. Grieve the loss of it to the church. Pray against it. We'll talk about that here in a moment. But grieve those who leave and abandon the word. People will walk away from the faith, and yes, even good people will do it. And this hurts deeply. Seeing someone leave their faith, again, a child trained since they were a child, very young child, or a parent who has lost, who was who was at one point a stalwart in their faith, who has now very little interest in their faith. Like these things hurt. You can grieve it, but acknowledge that it hurts. And it's okay for you to hurt. Grieve that. Because when you grieve it, there's something God does deep in our hearts through the work of the Spirit that heals us. And it draws us even deeper into our convictions and our comfort and our confidence in who Christ is. Fourth thing, before we go to the table, pray for those who leave. Be patient with those who leave the faith or maybe presently keeping their distance. See, apostasy works for the purposes of God. See, we can we can we can we can gander at all kinds of reasons why people apostatize from the faith. But here's the one thing that we need to remember: here, Jesus looks at his disciples at the end. He says, "You're you're the twelve I chose, right? Yet one of you's a devil." In other words, God's sovereignly at work even in the devil. Job seems to indicate this: that the, that Satan has to go to God to persecute Job. God's in charge. God's sovereignly in charge, even in these most difficult and desperate and grievous moments when people leave the faith. If Jesus chose Judas, yet Judas rejected and even turned hostile to the former master, then God has a reason for it, and he does the same thing in our lives. And it may not show itself immediately, but God through his own time will show that it's for our own good. That it's Possibly for their own good. Or it'll be good for someone we don't know yet. Trust the Lord in it. Pray for it. Pray against it. Be patient in it. Again, there's a number of reasons why people fall away. Be wise how you approach it. Be patient to show compassion. Be in prayer and demonstrate your dependency and conviction in the Lord like Peter talks about That he will one day raise us from the dead. As we come to the table this morning, let me just urge you: you're doing so. You're doing so as a, as a, as a as a, as a demonstration that you're holding on to your confession. Because it's not a table that you designed. It's Jesus' table who invited you. So by coming to the table, you are saying, I'm holding my confession, sure. I might be a little shaky this morning. I might be a little off. But I'm going to hold on to my confession this morning. Because Jesus is holding on to me. Let's pray. Father, help us now as we finish up our time together. Thank you for your word that just constantly ministers to us and works in our hearts and shows us the goodness of Christ and his love and his word in our life and God may you be glorified in your people as we continue to hold on to our faith and hopefully help others hold on to theirs we love you it's in Christ's name amen